0: Turn to Job 35, God's Word, Job chapter 35. Give your attention to the reading of it, God's infallible Word, Job 35. And Elihu answered and said, Do you think this to be just? You say, It is my right before God. That you ask what advantage I have. How am I better off than if I had sinned? I will answer you and your friends with you. Look at the heavens and see. And behold the clouds which are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or does does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself, and your righteousness a son of man. Because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They call for help because of the arm of the mighty. But none says, Where is God my maker, who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth, and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens? There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. How much less when you say that you do not see him, that the case is before him and you are waiting for him. But now, because his anger does not punish and he does not make take, uh, take much note of transgression, Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. As far as the reading of God's word, may bless it to us. So you bump into an unknown. You're confronted with something that you don't understand. What do you do? Well, if you care enough, you try to find the answer, which nowadays is about as simple as Googling it. Yes, we carry the world's library in our pockets to answer all of our questions. Of course, Google is not nearly as omniscient as we think it is, It is good at telling you what a word means or what other movies you've seen that actress in. But when it comes to the events of our life, or particularly why our prayers are not answered, Google's practically worthless. Indeed, the mysteries of providence are true unknowns, and when we crash into them, we often throw up our hands with various phrases like, well, God is sovereign, he moves in mysterious ways, The Lord knows what is best. Everything happens for a reason. And sure, such notions are true enough as far as they go, but they aren't terribly helpful in easing our curiosity. And thus, we regularly do not stop with little phrases like these, but we press on to guess at God's reasons. Yes, we try to explain the transcendent ways of the Lord with our own imagination, which is basically what Job and his three friends have been doing this whole time. Well, Elihu is one that refuses to be left out. And so it's his turn now to interpret the ways of God. And we will see if his answers are any better than just guessing. So despite being a bit blustery, the youthful Elihu started off Fairly decent, as he did point out some truths that Job had not considered. But then, in the last chapter, his temper got the better of him, and he threw some pretty outlandish charges at Job. He did call Job a buddy of wicked men and a scoffing alcoholic. Yeah, Elihu was smoking the wacky debacky at this point. And yet, when you're giving a speech, you can go astray for a bit, but then you can come back to more sound argumentation. Thus, we cannot write Elu off just yet. Rather, as a good neighbor, we need to hear him out, for he is only halfway through his exhortation to Job. And now he continues by again quoting something that Job has said. First, he pokes Job with a question. Do you really think this is just? And just here has all its legal connotations to it. That is, it is this a proper lawsuit with good judgment, he asked? Do you think this is a just case, Job? Come on. Thus Elihu is making a narrow point here. He is focusing on Job's demands and his insistence to have a court hearing with the Lord. And this has been the nub of the issue for Job, thus Elihu fittingly targets it. But then he quotes Job's main position when Job said, I am more right than God, or my righteousness stands taller than God's. Now, Job has not said these exact words per se, but these are an accurate summary of his arguments, namely, Job has justified himself more than God. Now, Job didn't call God unjust in the abstract, but in the narrow case, or in Job's particular case, Job has affirmed his own righteousness, and he put God in the dock for being a cruel friend to him. And this is precisely where Job has misstepped. He was more sure of his own uprightness than that of God's. Job is confident that he will win his court case before the Lord. Well, Elihu is back on the straight and narrow then on this point as he brings it up. But next he brings in another statement of Job in verse 3 when he says, What have I gained? How have I profited for without sinning? Now, again, this is not an exact quote of Job, but a condensing of his frustration. Namely, Job has labored so hard to keep his hands unstained from sin, but he's still suffering like the chief of sinners. Thus, Job is asked, what's the point? Uprightness is supposed to prosper you, but his integrity has only dealt him failure and curse. As Job said earlier in chapter 9, if I'm condemned by God, why do I labor in vain? This is Job lamenting that he reaped the opposite of what he sown. Particularly, Job is complaining that his purity and uprightness have not availed him to get a court case with the Lord. For by the principles of justice, if one suffers wrongly, Don't they have a right from God to be vindicated? Well, Job has been above reproach ten times over, but the court of the Lord remains shut to him. His sin-free life hasn't helped him. He postures himself as more on the side of being right than even God himself. Why won't Job's plea be granted? Why is his prayer unanswered? This is the narrow issue that Elihu now puts under the microscope. And he's on much more solid footing with this narrow focus. But now he shifts to fix Job's problem. You want to be justified over God? You ache for a trial with the Almighty? Well, I will answer you, says Elihu. Let me be God's stand-in, his representative for you. Now, it's fairly uh, fairly standard operating procedure for God to employ mediators. The Lord will hire an intercessor to act between him and humanity. And Job has wished for such a mediator. As he said again in chapter 9, there is no arbiter between God and I who might lay his hand on both of us. Well, God has not appointed a public defender for God or a spokesman for himself, so Elihu volunteers. Yes, Elihu takes upon himself this office of mediator. He declares, I will be God's agent to you, Job. The Lord hasn't responded to you, so Elihu will respond for God. Elihu postures himself as God's spokesman as the Lord's prophet of wisdom. Though typically in scripture, this office of mediator can only be filled by God's appointment. That is, you cannot volunteer for this position. God must assign it to you. Well, Elihu appoints himself to this high office. We get the feeling that this young man is too big for his britches. But let's see how he does. Thus, he begins his preaching for God in verse 5 with a classic wisdom technique. He says, look at the heavens, gaze at the clouds and consider. This is like the father in Proverbs who points his son to the ants as a warning against laziness. That is, wisdom is able to learn truths from the natural world and apply them to our morality and our relationship with God. So Elihu points Job to the heavens, to the weather patterns of the clouds scooting across the sky. What then can the heavenly clouds teach us? Well, he goes on. He says, if you sin, what do you do for God? How does your transgressions affect the Almighty? Likewise, if you are righteous, do you add something to the Lord? Well, the clear answer being, our piety or impiety has no effect or benefit on God. Can you change the weather by your sinning? Well, no. No one's obedience can make the sun come out from behind the clouds. Your sin doesn't shift the jet stream so that a storm blows in. Well, in the same way, our sin or obedience doesn't add or subtract anything from God. Our piety has no meteorological effects, and so it has no influence, positive or negative, upon the sovereign and transcendent God of heaven and earth. Now this is an odd-sounding argument that feels sideways to us. And yet Elihu brings it up to stress God's transcendence and self-existence. That is, the Lord is far above and beyond us, and as well as everything else in the created realm. And so lofty is his sovereignty and glory that the Lord no way depends upon us. Our behavior has no necessary effect on God. Whether we are good or bad, we cannot change God, obligate him to us, Or force him to act in a way that we desire. The Lord is transcendently unmoved by our piety or lack thereof. Now in the narrow sense, this is true. In and of himself, God is self-existent, self-dependent, and infinitely transcendent. And our behavior contributes nothing to him and his glory. The problem with this point, though, is that this is not how God generally relates to us. Instead, God has condescended to us by way of covenant. And in the covenant, the Lord says he is glorified by our uprightness and he's furious with our rebellions. Thus, Elihu's point here is a fine technical truth of theology, but we scratch our heads on how he's going to use it. And so he goes on. Instead of affecting God, our piety, he says, is just for our fellow humans. We can't compel God by our behavior, but we can other mortals. If we are wicked, we can harm our fellow image bearers. If we are upright, this can harvest tremendous goods for our fellow neighbors. Our piety possesses significant influence over other humans. Our actions create an equal and opposite reaction in people. Our piety then affects not God, but it does other sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And now Elihu puts this idea to work in verse 9, where now he speaks generally. He says, people cry to God when they are oppressed. They pray for help. When the mighty abuses them, now this refers to the rather common experience of innocent suffering. There is oppression and tyrannical power under the sun. The strong regularly beat up on the weak, and they do not deserve it. Now, the mistreated don't have to be sparkling upright, but they are innocent of the unjust cruelty they suffer. Hence, they pray to God to deliver them and to set things right. And, of course, this is a common part of life, and it even fits well Job's position. For against the three friends, Job has argued on several occasions that he is the innocent and righteous sufferer. He prays to God to rescue him judicially from the bitter shame. But Elihu now analyzes These painful types of prayer. And he says that too often when people cry to God, they do not even think, where is God my maker? Now this line expresses trust and submission. Their prayers are devoid of humility and faith. Next, such people crying for help often do not even consider that God is the giver of songs in the night. Now, songs sound with tunes of joy and delight, while night is the blackness of torment and agony. To sing at night is to find merry peace in the middle of your dark crucible. This is a paradoxical image. Namely, one is happy amid the shadow of death. And this is exactly what the Lord can do within us. Just as Paul sang hymns in that cold dungeon of Philippi, so the Lord is able to give us songs in the dark night of our sufferings. But the people who pray, who are oppressed and pray, often do not even consider this. All they want is the end to the nightmare. They don't even look for songs amid their pains. And, it doesn't even dawn on them, that the Lord may not stop the night of their suffering, but he will give them a happy tune to hum through it. Thus, these prayers forget that God teaches wisdom to us more than the birds and the beasts. The Lord didn't make us like irrational animals, but he put in us brains that can think and ponder. The Lord teaches us, he enables us a measure of wisdom after his image, and yet too often, when we pray to help, we bellow like dumb beasts. We moo and we whinny for no apparent reason. It's like when we say to our dogs, what are you barking at? And so we squawk irrationally. We pray without logical wisdom that God has given us. And this is how Elihu colors human prayers, even the innocent crying for deliverance from some sort of abuse. Now, Elihu isn't saying this is how every prayer is, but the petitions of men and women are like this quite often. And we can't really disagree with Elihu here. We've prayed like this, without faith or submission, and just bleeding Like a dumb lamb. And the result of such ignorant bellowing is that God, according to Elihu, doesn't listen or answer. Such appeals are empty, vain, and hollow, and the Lord will not hear or regard them. Indeed, the Lord answers not because these cries flow from the arrogance of evil men. It's human pride that assumes that just because we cry in our hardship, that the Lord has to answer us. To treat the Almighty like our divine ATM, as if he is at our beck and call, so that we can withdraw benefits from him at any time and in any amount, this is hubris. It's a gross arrogance to understand our wishes to be God's commands. Such pride, though, often leaks out of an evil heart. These prayers might be innocent of the oppression they suffer, but they are still filled with evil and arrogance. Not deserving your abuse doesn't by default make you upright or your prayers healthy. And Elihu refers to this regular perversion of prayer in order to apply it to Job. God doesn't hear empty cries, and so much, so how much less you, Job? You complain that you cannot see God in a court case, and you strongly imply the problem is with God. You fault God for not hearing you, but the problem is with you, Job. Your cries are empty and vain, and the Lord doesn't heed such vanity. Check your arrogance, Job, says Elihu. Your case is before God, and so you must wait. This is what you should do. But instead, because the Lord doesn't punish you further, because the Lord hasn't slapped you down for your transgressive prayer, you keep running your mouth with empty talk. You add word upon word without knowledge. And with this, Elihu's argument is, is sealed up at this point. Thus, what is he saying to Job overall? Well, his logic goes basically as follows. One, the Lord is transcendent and sovereign. As the Almighty and the All-Powerful One, God is ultimately unaffected by our behavior, be it uprightness or wickedness. Point two, the Lord has been silent towards Job's suffering. (laughs) God hasn't given a peep on why Job has lost everything or why the heavenly court is shut to him. Hence, the nub is why is God silent? Why does the Lord, or what does the Lord's quiet transcendence mean? How does one explain the speechlessness of the sovereign? Well, Job filled in this silence by saying, something's wrong with God. Job is a righteous sufferer. God has not opened his tribunal, so the error falls to God, since Job is so upright. Thus, Job is more right than God. But Elihu now butts in and says, no, no, no. This is a bogus read of God's silence. The reason God doesn't answer you, Job, is your prayers. You pray like a foolish donkey, braying for no rational reason. Your cries spring from arrogance. Your petitions are empty and hollow as you lack faith and humility before the Lord. Job, you foolishly didn't realize that God can give you songs in the middle of the night. What is contradictory to you is doable to the lord hence elihu chides job for being arrogant and presumptive in his prayers and he characterizes his petitions as the foolish squawking of a peacock and compared to the last chapter elihu is much more on target his argument is more narrow and nuanced he's restrained exaggeration and reigned in his temper Simply put, he tells Job, your prayers are arrogant. This is why you're not heard. Instead, just shut up and wait. Just be quiet and wait upon the Lord. Stop talking, Job, for the more you say, the deeper the hole you dig for yourself. And Eli, whose argument is rational, but is he right? This is the real issue. Is Elihu correct in his explanation? Well, the first thing to notice is how similar Elihu and Job are in their thinking. They almost totally agree on the first two premises. Premise one, God is transcendent. Job has lauded the sovereignty of God just as much or more than Elihu has. The Lord's not bound by us. He's not compelled by our piety or lack. Elihu and Job both say amen to this. The second premise is that God is silent about Job's suffering. Well, no disagreement here. God hasn't held a trial for Job. He hasn't shown himself or spoken from heaven to Job. Nobody has a clue why in God's transcendent plan, Job has fallen into such agony. Again, Job and Elihu are on the same page. The disagreement, though, comes in the conclusion, in the interpretation of God's transcendent silence. Job reads the quiet of heaven as God being in error. He is more right than God. On the other hand, Elihu translates the quiet of God as the arrogance of Job's prayers. The problem is Job's. Not God's. So then who is a better reader of God's transcendent plan? Well, neither of them. They both have it wrong. Indeed, at the end of the day, Job and Elihu are just guessing. For the very definition of the silent transcendence is that God has not given clear revelation. The Lord has not told any of the characters in our story the reasons behind His sovereign ways. And without clear revelation, the best we can do is throw guesses in the dark. Hence, as readers, we sit in a more privileged, a privileged seat than either Job or Elihu. For God did reveal in the opening chapters why Job has suffering. Job is suffering to prove him as God's loyal friend over against the Satan. But the five guys in the story, they're clueless to this. And so they're all guessing at God's mysterious providence. Thus, the lesson for us is that the revealed things belong to us, but the secrets belong to God. And when God keeps his secrets in providence, which he does a great deal, we are fools to guess. The Lord's transcendence means that his ways are higher than our ways, but our theories are attempts to bring him down to our level. And when we make conjectures about what God's silent transcendent means, we so often make fools of ourselves. With clear revelation from God, We can be confident in the truth, but in the face of hidden providence, we are granted no such assurance. In this regard, though, at least Elihu's guess is within the realm of the possible. Job surmises that God's silence means he is in error. Job reads the lack of revelation as him being more right than God. But this isn't even possible. Whatever the parent chaos of providence spells, it'll never prove that a human is more righteous than the Holy One. Yet Elihu's guess is true at times. Sometimes God refuses to answer prayer because we pray poorly, with arrogance and no faith. Now, this doesn't fit Job very well, but it is true some of the times. Thus, Elihu guesses better, but he's still just guessing. Thus, from this session of throwing darts in a dark room, we learn to be grateful for special revelation. Indeed, we are instructed to rest in the word of God. We should not guess at providence, but we can stand boldly upon the truth of the Lord from Genesis to Revelation. And at the heart of what God has revealed clearly to us is the gospel of our Savior. Jesus was born, he suffered on the cross, and he rose from the dead for our redemption. And having been justified in Christ and united to him, nothing can separate us from his love. In the Son, the Father works all things for the good of those who love him. Sure, God's transcendence still is far beyond us. Providence is often a great mystery to us. But in the clear truth of the gospel, you can know without a doubt that Christ is working all of providence to bring you to glory. Elihu shows us ignorant prayers, but Jesus has taught us how to pray in faith and with understanding. And so when we pray in the name of Jesus, we have a promise that God hears us and loves us forever. Sure, the way God answers our prayers is often still a head-scratcher, but through the grace of Christ, our prayers are heard because of his merit and in intercession, and God works them for our good, even if we don't understand it at times. And the Father gives us songs, songs of joy, even in the bleak, the most bleak, uh, bleak providences. This, then, is why we are devoted to Scripture, For the real things, the revealed things are ours, but the secrets belong to God. Thus we cling to the open truths granted to us, and we entrust the unknown transcendent things to the Lord. And in this, Elihu does hand us a fitting application. In verse 15, he tells Job just to be quiet. And wait upon the Lord. Yes, humbly waiting upon the Lord is the correct posture of our faith and our hope as we wade and limp along through the turbulent waters of Providence. We do not know what God is doing tomorrow or the next day, but Jesus has won eternity for you. Tomorrow is not yours. But heaven is, and this is a truth you can know and not doubt. Thus, let tomorrow bring what it may, for we rest in the the hands of our beloved Savior, and nothing can snatch us out of his loving palms. Instead, may we rejoice in the firm foundation that God has given us in his word, And then, may we wait upon Christ in faith and with songs of praise, even through the difficult times of life. Indeed, even as we pass through this veil of tears, this valley of shadow of death called life, let us always sing of God's truth, of his steadfast love, and that God's mercy is new for us every morning. That he will not forsake us, but he will be with us even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray.